You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. This episode is another in our regular series, taking an in-depth look at the SMFM pregnancy meeting. To find out more about the meeting, go to www.smfm.org or go to the AJP homepage at www.tima.com forward slash AJP. Welcome to another edition of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. Today's podcast is the first update from the 39th annual meeting, the pregnancy meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine held in Las Vegas, Nevada. In this podcast, we will review some of the highlights from the opening day of the annual meeting, including highlights from the oral plenary session one, as well as the oral concurrent session on labor and delivery induction. A major theme of the day today at the first day of the scientific session for the SMFM annual meeting centers around the topic of induction of labor. The Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine noted the interest in induction of labor and dedicated one of the oral concurrent sessions today to the topic of induction of labor. Much of the interest in induction of labor was developed following the publication of the ARRIVE trial in 2018. In the ARRIVE trial, low-risk, singleton, nulliparous women were randomized to either elective induction of labor at 39 weeks gestational age or expectant management. The primary finding in the ARRIVE trial was that there was noted to be a reduction in the cesarean rate with elective induction of labor with a cesarean delivery rate of 18.6% compared to the cesarean delivery rate in expectant management of 22.2%. One of the areas of concern following publication of the ARRIVE trial was that patients who were admitted for induction of labor spend an increased length of time on labor and delivery undergoing induction of labor, and this could result in an increased utilization of resources and increased costs in those patients who are undergoing induction of labor compared to those who had shorter hospital stays with the expected management group. The ARRIVE trial at that point was not set up to determine differences in cost regarding expectant management versus induction of labor. In the opening plenary section, Dr. William Grobman reviewed their secondary analysis of the ARRIVE's trial entitled Resource Utilization Among Low-Risk Nulliparas randomized to elective induction at 39 weeks or expectant management. In this planned secondary analysis of the ARRIVES trial, resource utilization after randomization was categorized a priori according to when the resources were used. Dr. Grobman reviewed both antepartum delivery admission and from discharged until eight weeks postpartum potential areas of resource utilization that could be compared between the elective induction of labor group and the expected management group. The secondary analysis included 3,059 patients who were randomized to induction of labor and 3,037 patients who were randomized to expected management. While patients undergoing elective induction of labor had significant increases in resource utilization during labor and delivery, including time spent on labor and delivery, increased rates of cervical ripening, oxytocin infusion, use of intrauterine pressure catheter. There were inverse relationship in resource utilization 
between the antepartum and postpartum time periods and those with elective induction of labor compared to expectant management. Patients in the expectant management arm had a significantly greater number of ambulatory care visits as well as a significant number of urgent care ER or triage visits and unanticipated obstetric office visits had an increased utilization of tests prior to admission, including non-stress tests, sonograms, and other lab tests. Finally, neonates who were in the elective induction of labor arm were noted to have an increased rate of greater than one office visit that was unanticipated in the newborn period and seems to be attributable to those who required respiratory assistance following delivery. In summary, the patients randomized to induction of labor spent more time in labor and delivery and used more labor and delivery specific induction of labor resources, but also had fewer antepartum visits, tests, intrapartum therapeutic interventions, and shorter postpartum maternal and neonatal hospital stays. Given the wide heterogeneity in hospital costs and charges across the multi-institutional makeup of this study, direct financial estimation of the balance of these intrapartum versus anti or postpartum resource utilizations was not able to be determined by this study. However, as Dr. Grobman pointed out, taking this data and translating it to individual institutions may help each individual institution decide for their population whether elective induction of labor at 39 weeks versus expected management has a significant financial impact for their institution or their patient population. To try to address the economic impact of induction of labor versus expected management, Dr. Alyssa Hirsch presented abstract number 20 in the oral concurrent session on Thursday, February 14th at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine meeting. She and her co-authors sought to examine the cost-effectiveness and outcomes associated with induction of labor at 39 weeks versus expectant management. In this analysis, they used a theoretical cohort of 1.6 million women, which is approximately the number of noliparous term births in the United States annually that are considered low risk. They determined a quality-adjusted life year and a cost for both the woman and the neonate related to potential complications that can be associated with induction of labor versus expected management, including cesarean delivery rates, preeclampsia, macrosomia, intrauterine fetal demise, permanent brachial plexus injury, cerebral palsy, and neonatal death. They set a cost-effectiveness threshold at $100,000 per quality-adjusted life year. In their base cohort, of 1.6 million women, elective induction of labor resulted in 49,449 fewer cesarean deliveries and 79,152 fewer cases of preeclampsia, as well as resulting in 795 fewer cases of intrauterine fetal demise and 49 fewer neonatal deaths. Their analysis noted that induction of labor resulted in increased costs but also increased quality-adjusted life years with an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of $97,501 per quality, making it cost-effective in their analysis. 
the authors did several sensitivity analyses and determined that this model remained cost-effective until a couple of significant variables reached certain thresholds. Elective induction of labor remained cost-effective until the cost of induction exceeded $2,000. Additionally, the rate of cesarean delivery in the induction of labor group had a significant impact on whether the intervention remained cost-effective. In cases where the cesarean delivery rate for induction of labor group remained lower than the expected management group, then elective induction of labor remained cost-effective. In cases where the rate of cesarean delivery was the same or greater with induction of labor than expectant management, then expectant management was cost-effective. In their multiple simulations, elective induction of labor remained cost-effective more than 65% of all the sensitivity analyses that they made. This analysis, unlike that of Dr. Groban, did not factor in significant additional antenatal and postnatal resource utilization for those in the expected management group compared to the elective induction of labor group. However, overall, Dr. Hirsch and their group demonstrated that in the bulk of their sensitivity analysis, elective induction of labor at 39 weeks, as in the ARRIVE trial, was cost-effective compared to expectant management. The ARRIVE data was also used to explore factors that could be associated with adverse maternal or neonatal outcomes. In abstract number 25 and 27, Dr. Alan Tita used the ARRIVE data to explore the duration of labor on adverse outcomes. In abstract 25, Dr. Tita explored the relationship of duration of latent phase of labor in induced labor on cesarean delivery and maternal and perinatal morbidity in the nulliparous low-risk group. In this analysis, using patients in the ARRIVE data who underwent induction of labor was analyzed. The duration of latent phase of labor, which was defined as the time from start of oxytocin to 5 centimeters dilated, was examined in three-hour intervals from less than 12 hours to 24 and more hours. The primary outcome included cesarean delivery and maternal and perinatal outcomes. The median duration of the latent phase of labor was 19.6 hours, with 33% of the cases demonstrating a latent phase less than 12 hours, 25% with latent phase 12 to 23 hours, and 42% with latent phase greater than 24 hours. The frequency of cesarean delivery and maternal composite adverse outcomes was increased with an increase in latent phase, with the most significant increases after 18 hours for maternal morbidity and after 15 hours for cesarean delivery. Specifically, at 18 hours of latent phase labor, the cesarean delivery rate was 28% versus 16% for latent phase less than 12 hours, and at 18 hours, the composite maternal morbidity rate was 26.0% versus 14.5% for latent phase less than 12 hours. The duration of latent phase did not influence neonatal composite outcomes. While the increase in latent phase was associated with cesarean delivery and maternal composite outcomes, the authors were not able to give a specific latent phase duration to suggest timing for optimal cesarean deliveries. In Dr. Tita's accompanying abstract, number 28, the authors examined the duration of the second stage of labor on cesarean delivery and maternal and neonatal outcomes. Importantly, the outcomes in this analysis were not influenced by the presence of an epidural. Cesarean delivery increased for each hour of second stage after two hours, but even after three or greater hours, most women continue to have a vaginal delivery. 
neonatal intensive care unit admission was increased only in a subset of patients with second stage greater than five hours. And there was a modest increase in neonatal composite morbidity with increasing second stage of labor duration. Dr. El Said, additionally, in abstract number 23, examined patient characteristics that could be associated with adverse perinatal outcomes in women in the ARRIVE trial, randomized to elective induction of labor at 39 weeks, who delivered after 39 weeks. In this data, only expectant management and increasing BMI were associated with increased composite perinatal morbidity, thus a subgroup of women more likely to have adverse outcomes with induction of labor could not be identified. Finally, as the ARRIVE trial only included nulliparous women, in abstract number 26, Dr. Sinke and her group examined maternal and neonatal outcomes between elective induction of labor and expectant management in low-risk, multiparous women in a similar fashion to the ARRIVE trial. In this retrospective cohort of low-risk multiparous women at a single institution delivering between 39 weeks and zero days and 42 weeks and zero days gestational age, those with elective induction of labor were compared to expectant management. The induction of labor group was delivered between 39 weeks, zero days, and 39 weeks, four days. The primary outcome was risk of neonatal morbidity, which ended up being lower with elective induction of labor compared to expectant management, and the secondary outcome was cesarean delivery, which was significantly improved with elective induction of labor with a rate of 5.1% versus 6.6% in the inspectic management group. In summary, on the first day of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, significant number of abstracts and oral presentations centered around refining data derived from the ARRIVE trial and other outcomes associated with elective induction of labor. Based on the ARRIVE data, elective induction of labor seems to be associated with increased labor and delivery costs and increased utilization, but also with reduced antenatal visit and testing costs, which can have specific institution-based implications. The baseline assumptions of the ARRIVE trial make elective induction of labor cost-effective compared to expectant management. However, institution population specifics in cesarean delivery rates may affect the cost-effectiveness of elective induction of labor. Finally, the duration of the latent phase and second stage are associated with cesarean delivery rate. However, this data is not informative on determining limits of duration of latent phase or second stage. Overall, just a small sampling of some of the exciting research noted at the first day of the 39th annual pregnancy meeting sponsored by the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about the journal at www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next time.